Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr. Thank you so much for listening in. We've got a great episode today. We do these industry insiders, which are special little mini episodes that I throw in every couple of weeks, where we take a break from talking with our actual independent record labels, and we talk with people who work in the industry who run businesses or have services that help indie labels and DIY artists do their thing. Today, I'm talking with Cassandra Spangler, who is a music attorney uh, from the U.S., and I hope that there's some helpful questions and answers in here that will help guide you in your decision in hiring a lawyer, when should I hire a lawyer, how should I hire a lawyer, uh, how do I pick a lawyer, that kind of stuff. I hope that you find that helpful. Speaking of helpful, visit our website if you haven't already. I am working on a handful of new resources for people who are starting indie record labels or who who are running indie record labels. You can go to otherrecordlabels.com to review some of the resources we have there. And there's plenty more coming in the next couple of weeks. I'm really excited to show you what we have in store. Also, just a couple of minutes ago, I was reading some of the iTunes reviews of the podcast, and I'm happy to say they were all positive and they're all very encouraging. Thank you for those who take the time to do that. And please, if you haven't already, and if you've been a subscriber for the, to the show for a while, please do that. It really helps. Just go to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. If you're listening to this on YouTube, you can leave a comment or subscribe there as well. Uh, all of that is surprisingly really helpful, as well as a lot of the emails I've been getting have been so encouraging in the DMs. So thank you for reaching out and doing that. Uh, and I f- hope that you find these episodes helpful. I've, I've never um, talked to a lawyer on the phone before. I, I hope this isn't costing me like $500 an hour. <laughs> <laughs> There, you no, didn't, I'm, you, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> I was waiting for your response. <laughs> I, I, there is a bit of, of this like dichotomy where there's this cultural cliche that lawyers are really expensive, but then there's this other cultural cliche that artists are really poor. I'm curious like how musicians and music lawyers can, can bridge that gap. Yeah, it's um, sometimes it's tough. Personally, I try to work around different budgets. Mm-hmm. Um, so if if I have a client who I know is independent and is funding everything 100% um, themselves, then I try to work with them on that. Um, and then if there are clients who have, you know, major label budgets available to them, sometimes you can get the label to pay for some of the legal fees. Sure. Um, so it just depends. And then, you know, sometimes the idea is you, you give the client a break when they're starting. And then as they become more successful, um, you can kind of make up the difference. But I really believe that, you know, all artists um, of every level who are wanting to do music professionally need a lawyer. So I really try as best I can um, to work within everyone's budget. That's great. I mean, there is, you know, there is so much that I often, you know, find myself in the position of signing a contract and wanting to uh, have somebody give me advice and review it for me. But at the same time, you know, thinking that basically, uh, you know, risking it saying, well, I'm just going to sign it to save money. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. It's such an uncomfortable position to be in. It is. Yeah. And it's really, I I try to tell people to think of it as an investment, you know, so that, um, 
I mean, the thing with contracts is hopefully you never need to revisit it. Um, but in the case that you do, um, and if you spent a little bit of money at the beginning to make sure that it was negotiated properly and that you understood what you were signing, it can really end up saving you a lot of money um, in the long run. So totally really, yeah. Like an investment. I also, I mean, you know, from an anxiety level, I feel like there's a peace of mind to signing something, knowing that it's been looked over by somebody who's on your side. Yep, for sure. How did you get into music law? Was it music first or was it law first? It was music first. Okay. Um, so I started out as a drummer. I never did it professionally, um, but that was my first um, involvement with music. And I always sort of knew that I wanted to work in, in music, but I knew that I didn't want to be a professional musician. Mm -hmm. um, so originally, my dream was to start a label. Um, and then as when I was in college was when, um, you know, the early 2000s, when Napster happened, and sure. the Internet started to take over everything. So I started to question the role um, you know, I, I felt like the role of labels would shift a lot. Totally. Um, and I felt like no matter what happened and what changed, artists and labels would always need lawyers. Sure. So that's when I decided to go to law school. Um, and, and in between that time, I um, interned at a few different independent labels, um, a booking agency. I worked at a record store. Um, back when people still bought music in record stores. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, yeah, just ended up going to law school and getting into the legal side of it. That's awesome. And, and then, so how long have you been kind of running your own practice? Uh, a little over 10 years. Oh, my um, gosh. It was, yeah, about 10 and a half years now. Does the, the legal side of things kind of stay the same, like as the, uh, you know, there's so many new platforms and stuff and music has changed so much. Um, does your side of things evolve a lot as well, or, or is it a little bit more constant? It's a little more constant, but it does change. Um, sometimes the law is slow to catch up, you know, technology. Moves oh, yes, right. Law. So sometimes, you know, that a lot of these new technologies, it takes a while for things to catch up, but it, it definitely does change. And, you know, I, I try to stay educated on all the new things that happen. I mean, streaming is something that really has happened during the past 10 years. And so that's kind of been a big change. Um, but there are a lot of aspects that do stay the same as well. I'm, I'm curious if, if um, contracts moving forward um, have insulated themselves from any new technologies that could be invented that we don't even know about. Is that is that the case? They try. Yeah, yeah. you'll see a lot of language, um, especially in the longer contracts, where they try to cover every possible um, development that they can. Sometimes, you know, I remember there was at some point a shift from saying worldwide in the contract to saying throughout the universe because they thought, well, maybe at some point there will be music in space. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> they, they really try to cover every angle that they can. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's, I guess you could in theory, like go up uh, out of, out of the world into space and then like burn a bunch of CDs and duplicate them and then come back down. And that would be legal. 
Yeah. For right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I'm curious. I'm I'm from Canada, and I know like our listeners uh, exist a lot in the U.S., but um, we do have a lot of um, listeners around the globe and in Europe and in Canada as well. Um, how different is music law between countries, like between the U.S. and Europe and the U.S. and Canada? Is there a lot of overlap, or or um, or are things completely different? There's some overlap. Um, some countries, you know, I think some of the biggest differences you will see um, are in terms of copyright laws and okay. other type of intellectual property protection because some countries don't have very much, if any. Right. Um, so, you know, and it used to be more of a problem, I would say, when everything was physical, you know, physical CDs or DVDs. Um, that's why you would get a lot of pirating from certain countries that don't have a lot of copyright protection. Sure. Um, but then the flip side is some kind, you know, especially a lot of European countries have more protection sometimes for artists. Um, they recognize certain types of rights that we don't recognize here in the United States as much. Um, so it's really kind of a spectrum. And I would say the biggest aspects that vary that I've seen have to deal with, you know, artist rights <clears throat> and then also intellectual property. Mm. This is a question that just popped up as I was thinking when we were talking about the technology evolving and whatnot. And I'm thinking about streaming, and there's a lot of discomfort amongst smaller indie artists with you know the streaming royalties and and how small they are and, and how hard it is to to make a living off them. Um, those seem to be kind of driven by. The, the major labels is do you do you know is there any hope for younger artists being uh, or sorry I should say uh, more independent and smaller artists um, being represented in, uh, in in any way to to having those royalties increased or uh, you know is that a, a legal thing at all like uh, um, in giving smaller artists a voice I think. You know, they're, they're always doing a lot of lobbying, trying to get those rates um, increased. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I would say kind of two things. One is, you know, again, going back to like the early 2000s when with Napster, where really crippled the whole industry sure. and suddenly people were not paying for music at all anymore. So when Spotify and some of the other streaming services came around, it was at least, you know, went from people stealing it for free to paying a, at least a small amount of royalties. Right. So in that sense, it was sort of a step in the right direction. Um, and the other thing that I tell people is, you know, it is a small payment amount, um, but it can be spread out over a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. So whereas when people were buying CDs, maybe they bought the CD for, you know, $12.99 and they paid for it once totally. and that was it. Whereas with streaming, you know, if they like the album, um, they might be listening to it for years and years to come. And every time they're listening, you're getting a small payment. So it's, it's a lower amount up front for sure. Um, but if it's an album that is sustainable and sticks around, it can end up being, you know, a longer term payment. So I think that aspect is good. Um, but as far as increasing the rates themselves, yeah, I think people are always lobbying for that. And I think artists should band together and try to get those increased. Mm. Um, 
especially now with everything that's going on with touring. Right. Um, because, that's you right. know, who knows when touring is going to be back. So people are relying more upon online content. And I think that may give some leverage to artists to say that they need those rates to be increased. That's a, that's a, um, uh, that's a great point about the, and I've, I've kind of held that position too about the long term, um, you know, and, and really, like you said, uh, if an album is sustainable, there might be a chance that you're going to get more than that original twelve ninety nine over the course of five or 10 years. It's maybe just harder to, to stomach or harder to pay the rent, <laughs> but it's a, that's a great point. Yeah. Let me ask you about contracts. That's a really big thing with our audience. Our, our, our audience are, are indie labels, and, and they're obviously, you know, a lot of them are, are one-person operations and, and uh, always working to keep costs down. And um, I, I know a lot of labels opt not to do any sort of contract. I'm, I'm kind of seeing that trend a little bit. Um, is there a scenario where that's okay? Is there, is there a scenario where no agreement is, is better than a bad agreement? I would say from the label perspective, no. Okay. Um, from the artist perspective, there may be situation. I mean, in a sense, yes, because if there's no contract, then technically, um, at least in the U.S., there the label does not have the rights to be using that copyright. So oh. what could end up happening is if the artist is unhappy and there's no contract with the label, the artist could then... Um, force the label to stop distributing the music. So I would say from a label perspective, you should always have a contract. doesn't necessarily have to be 50 or 100-page contract, but sure. it does have to be in writing, um, at least under the copyright laws. So I would say always if you're a label, you know, you're investing money into this and you're investing time into it, you should definitely have something in writing to protect yourself. Can there, can there be any capacity where an informal agreement can act as a contract of some sort, like a, an email thread uh, or, or even just like a one-page document with just statements or something? Email is a little tricky. I would say it's better to have an email than to have nothing. Okay. Um, under the copyright law, it has to be in writing and it has to be signed. Oh, I see. So, okay. you know, you could make the argument that an email has an electronic signature, but it's definitely safer if it, even if it's a one page document that just lists out the major terms, mm. um, that would be much safer than having nothing. I think there's always this concern where once you start to get into a, like a legal conversation and, and you start using terms like worldwide or the entire universe, that often makes the artists scared. They uh, and I and I've I've had this this conversation with um, when I was you know working on a contract with an artist who was a very close friend of mine. I, f I feel like they got very protective and defensive um, just using some of these terms like the length of term and worldwide. And stuff. Is there a way to kind of um, work with artists who are really come into some of these relationships very protective and sort of with their backs up? Yeah, it's always tricky. Um, and it's one of, I think, I find to be uh, the most difficult aspects is as a lawyer trying to write it so that it's as comprehensive as possible mm. so that nothing comes up later that's not covered. But then on the other hand, you don't want to scare um, right. people away, you know, with a 50 page contract. So you have to find some kind of a balance where 
you're including the major terms um, at least, and depending on the you know type of situation that it is, that you're at least including the major terms, but maybe you're putting it, uh, sometimes what I'll do is I'll put it in the form of a letter. Oh, so okay. it'll be like a letter agreement that just kind of spells everything out very clearly. Um, and sometimes artists are more comfortable with that format. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a tricky, tricky balance between making sure everything is covered and making sure that it's not scaring anyone away. Right. Yeah. It, uh, it can be so intimidating and there is such a, you know, from the old days back in the Napster days and before there was this like, you know, this, uh, cliche where labels are always out to get artists. So you can understand yeah. kind of where their fear is coming from. It, yeah. it, is there anything a label needs to do? Let's. I want to ask you about uh, about just the releases when we talk about copyright and stuff. Is there anything a label needs to do when it's releasing an album to protect that album? Is it enough just to um, print it to CD or press it to vinyl and put a copyright tag on the back? I always recommend registering the copyright. Um, okay, how do they do that? So in, in the U.S., you would do that through the Copyright Office, okay. um, which can be done online. And there are certain protections that you will lose um, if you don't. So at least under U.S. copyright law, the copyright belongs to you from the moment you create it, whether you register it or not. Okay. Um, and then, you know, so it, it initially belongs with the artist. And then that's why the, where the contract becomes important because the artist will usually sign over the copyright to the label. Oh, I so see. So now the label owns it, um, even if it's not been registered. But registration can give some um, important benefits. So, for example, if you ever need to bring a copyright lawsuit, um, you have to register it before you can do that. And also, once you're in the lawsuit, um, if you registered the copyright before release or within three months of the first release, then you uh, it's much easier to prove how much money you are owed in the lawsuit um, mm. because under the law, you don't have to, if you registered it on time, you don't have to go through the process of proving how much money you lost from the infringement. Um, there's just a set amount that you can ask for under the law, hmm. but you have to have registered in time in order to ask for that. Wow. Same thing goes with legal fees, um, which can be really, really, really expensive in copyright lawsuits, um, $100,000 or more. Okay. So if you registered on time, you can ask that the uh, losing party pay your legal fees, which becomes really important for a lot of people because most artists do not have, you know, the, the sure. funds to pay those copyright legal fees. So there are certain benefits that I they make it worth it to always register the copyright before you release it. Yeah, no, that's, and that's for albums and, and songs, everything. Yep. And you can register a group of, used to be, you know, you could register a hundred on, on one. They recently limited it to 10, um, but you can still register up to 10 songs um, on one registration, as long as you're the only, you know, the owner and the author of all 10. Okay. And is, do you know what the fee is for that approximately? Yeah, they recently increased it. Um, it was 55. I think they increased it to $65 okay. per application. Okay. And so, so maybe 65 per album or so that's not bad. Yep. yep. 
Um, there was, you know, talking about albums, there has been a conversation I've been noticing uh, in the kind of the indie music world about the, um, the length of time that a label owns the masters for. And so, you know, you know, traditionally, and you would know much more than me, but from my understanding, there was almost this like indefinite ownership of the masters um, that a label would have the rights to continue to sell that record pay the artist royalties, but they would own the rights to those, the masters, um, forever. And, and that's kind of, um, becoming less popular, certainly from the artists. Um, do you have an opinion on that or or have you seen that trend shifting in any way? Yeah, I think, you know, I I see both, both sides of it. Mm -hmm. Um, on one hand, yeah, if if you're the label and you put up all of the money up front for the recording costs and the promotion and the distribution, um, I, I see where it makes sense that you own those masters forever. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're the artist, you know, especially sometimes artists sign deals early in their career that aren't great, and then 30 years later they want to get their music back, um, which can be sometimes very difficult for them to do. So I can see where you know, they want the right to, to get the masters back. Sometimes rare occasions I've seen clauses that will have an amount, um, that gives the artist the right to buy the masters back for a certain amount. Um, after a certain period of time, Mm -hmm. I tend to tell people to avoid that because it's very difficult to estimate what the value of the masters will be in the future. Um, so, you know, if they go nowhere, they may be worth less. And if they become huge, they're going to be worth a lot more. So it's just too speculative to put an exact amount. Um, But yeah, it's definitely a a touchy subject for sure. Yeah. And and I'm glad you said that you see two sides because I, I, as this conversation was unfolding um, in a couple months ago on Twitter, I, I, I was kind of seeing it from the side of, of the label. And it, to me, it was very similar to investing in a startup. I mean, if you owned a, a part of Facebook or something or Instagram, uh, you wouldn't just be okay with giving up, uh, you know, being forced to give up your share after 10 years, whether it did well or not, you know. So I kind of do see, um, I do see both sides as well. Exactly. I think that's a great um, analogy. It's very much what it's like. And I think sometimes a lot of artists don't understand that, you know, that the label is really making an investment in them. And it's a very speculative investment where they may very well not make their money back. And so in the event that they do, they need to be able to hold on to that. Mm. Um I often get asked um, a lot. There's a lot of people, and, and I don't know how this works in America, but a, a lot of people are really concerned with when they're starting a label. And we have a lot of folks who are uh, who are listening, who who are in the process of starting a label or are dreaming of starting a label. But a, a lot of a lot of questions with respect to registering as an LLC or uh, doing mo- when they're starting a label, uh, doing more than just uh, making a logo and, and buying a domain. Is is there um, something that you think? is absolutely critical for a label to do when they're just starting their company um, uh, you know, keeping in mind of course uh, um, that the one of main one of their main objectives is keeping their costs down but is there something that they should be doing when they start their company yeah I think um, it's a good idea to start an LLC or a corporation 
um, either one, because that'll give you protection from, you know, it'll, it'll protect your personal assets. So okay. if you own a house separate from the company, or if you have, you know, an, a separate job where you're earning a salary, um, if anything happens with the label, they can't sue you for your house mm. or money you're earning from your other job. Um, so I would advise everybody to do it, you know, to set up an LLC or a corporation and then do business as the label under that entity um, rather than just as an individual or as a partnership. Okay. Um, also, you know, you mentioned the logo. Um, people may want to register the trademark in hmm. the name of the label and the logo, and that'll help to protect against other uh, kind of two things it'll do. One is help protect against other people from using the same name or logo to have a music company. And the other thing it'll do is you can make sure ahead of time that no one else already has it because the last thing you want is to That's a great spend all point. this money on branding and only to find out there's another label out there and you can't use the name anymore. Um, so setting up an LLC or a corporation, um, registering the trademark, and then just making sure that you have contracts um, as you're signing artists or if you're using producers or anyone else that you're working with, um, that you have proper contracts in place with them. I imagine in America, there's a lot of what you're talking about is stuff that people could do online. Is that true? It is. Yep. Almost everything um, can be done online now. Right. Like trademarks and everything. Yep. Yeah. Okay. No, that is a good point. And that, uh, the trademark thing has... You know, uh, uh, on some on, in some way, I feel like, well, if somebody steals it from me, it's probably I'll get over it. <laughs> you know, um, or I'll come up with something new. But I, I love the the other side of the coin where it's I could be stepping on somebody's toes without knowing it, and and that's yep. that's far worse in a way. Yeah. Do you see any? Uh, that, that's great advice. I appreciate. It. Do you see any uh, common legal mistakes from indie labels or indie artists that just kind of you see it happening and and it really uh, bugs you? I would say the contracts. You know that mm. that can be a big issue if the contracts are not um, in place or if they're not written the way that they should be written. Um, and trying to think of what else I see, um, not registering the copyrights and then not registering with all the various, you know, there's so many different income streams. Um, and a lot of times, maybe not so much labels, but a lot of artists don't, you know, they're not registered with ASCAP or BMI. They're not right. registered with Sound Exchange or mm -hmm. someone like Sound Song Trust. Um, and so because, again, going back to the streaming royalties being so small, it makes it even more important to make sure that you are registered with all these other collection agencies so that you're, you're not missing out on any portion of, of the income. Um, mm. Because a lot of those different types of royalties you can't collect unless you register. So um, I would say that's a common mistake as well. Um how does how does an artist or or how does a label find a music lawyer? I mean, how how should they go about that? Should it, should it be someone locally that they can come and meet in person? Is it something that can all be done online? I imagine it would be a, a kind of a daunting process just to Google it and and to find the right person. 
Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of it can be done online now, um, which is something that I've learned through this, you know, pandemic. Um, right. <laughs> everything is now done on Zoom or Skype. Um, and it seems to work out pretty well. Um, but if you're a per some people have personal preferences and they really want to meet in person, in which case, yeah, you want to make sure it's someone local to you. Um, and then just do your research because everybody, you know, has their own sort of personality. Um, and you want to make sure that it's somebody that you can work with and that you like their personality. Um, they have experience with similar types of artists um, because, you know, sometimes somebody might do a lot of work in the jazz world, but maybe sure. you're a reggae artist and, you know, so do your research on the person, um, see other types of artists they've worked with, what those artists have done. And if there's reviews available online, um, those types of things, I would say, you know, make sure they're accessible. Um, that's a big thing too. I hear a lot mm. of complaints from people that sometimes, you know, their lawyer in the past hasn't been very communicative. So make sure it's somebody that's really accessible to you. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the good thing about the Internet is you can really do a lot of research about people um, <laughs> yeah. ahead of time. So I would yeah. suggest that definitely suggest people do that when they're looking for a lawyer. And and if they want a lawyer who plays the same instrument as them, then that's mm -hmm. that's a nice thing, too. So you you primarily yeah. work with drummers, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that that can help too. Um, and and make sure that it's a music lawyer. You know, sometimes right. people will right. try to use, you know, especially because these contracts are so specific um, that I sometimes have had people that have hired like a real estate lawyer to review it, and the real estate lawyer just blown away by the the language because it's different from whatever would be used in their industry. So make sure that it's somebody familiar with music. That's, you know, that's actually probably not that obvious of a statement because I could imagine that somebody would say, well, I need a lawyer and I know there's a lawyer around the corner from my house. So I think that's, um, that is really great yeah. advice and it probably isn't, um, that obvious to most people. Yep. Definitely. Or someone has a cousin, you know, that's a lawyer and they're trying to save some money by just having them look at it for free. And, you know, so make sure that it's somebody um, that is familiar with music. What is the starting point for a label looking to start a contract with an artist? Is there Are there contract templates out there? I know a lot of people will just Google it and, and copy and paste something that they've found. Uh, where does a label begin when it comes to to creating a contract? I would, yeah, I would be very careful about the copying and pasting mm -hmm. um, because sometimes it may not, you know, it, it may have been copied and pasted by 10 different people before it made its way online. <laughs> kind of like that old game of telephone, yeah, you know, and by right. the time it makes it up there, it's like, just doesn't kind of say what you want it to say. Sure. So it sort of goes back to um, what I said at the beginning, where it's like an investment. Um, put a, you know, invest a little bit of money to have the contract drafted the way that you want it to be done at, at the beginning. And then, you know, maybe then you can use that as a template and just change the artist names or change the percentages and that kind of thing on mm. your own. Mm. Um, but I would, I would say also it helps to kind of familiarize 
yourself with what the major terms of the contract are and then, you know, have a discussion between the label and the artist, um, just kind of a general discussion of what the terms will be before going to the lawyer, um, because to the extent that the label and the artist are on the same page about things, then it makes everything run more smoothly. Mm. So it's the kind of thing where it's best to start with a lawyer, you think, when it comes to a contract, instead of creating a contract from scratch and then having the lawyer look over it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it it actually takes longer, I think, to uh, revise something that someone has done. Um, But it is always helpful when people create kind of like a list of bullet points. Oh, um, of things that they want to include. That always, that always is helpful. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And that, no, that's a great point. And is it normal? Is it, it's the, is it the label who's, who's hiring the, the lawyer or is it the artist? Like, I mean, w- wouldn't the artist feel more comfortable if they selected someone themselves? Yeah. Normally they would each have their own lawyer. Oh, I see. Um, and then the label's lawyer would usually be the one to draft the contract. And then the artist, um, ideally would have their own lawyer to I see. review it. I see. Okay. So is it rare then to have one lawyer facili- facilitating the deal for, for both parties? Yeah. It's, it's something you should really avoid okay. um, because otherwise it can become a conflict of interest and I see. I can see. create problems later on. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. That's uh, like, okay. Same, same thing in real estate, right? You, you have the, the buyer's realtor and the yep. sellers. I see. Okay. Yep. That's really cool. This has been very informative <laughs> and, uh, and very heavy, but I, I really appreciate it. It's, um, it, it is, uh, it's it's uh, it's not the it's not the most creative side of the business, but um, I find it really helpful to 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 get this insurance and to protect yourself, just to avoid conflict, which I hate, and anxiety, which I hate, <laughs> and yep. and uh, the that the peace of mind that this allows, I think, is really important. Definitely, yeah, and that's part of. You know, that's that's a good point, too, is that when you have the lawyer, now the lawyer can take on some of the stress and everything and you can just focus on um, the creative aspect. Totally. That's great. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for for carving out some time uh, during the pandemic and 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 sharing this. And I hope that our our listeners uh, are are inspired to uh, and myself included inspired to do things uh, right and to to get all their affairs in order. So thank you so much for doing this. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening. You can find out more about Cassandra and her services at cspanglermusiclaw.com. That's spelled C-S-P-A-N-G-L-E-R, musiclaw.com. It was so enlightening for me doing this interview, and I hope that you found it helpful. I, I have always kind of been a fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants startup type of mentality when it comes to running a label and trying to save um, expenses as much as possible and spending more implicit costs than explicit costs. And and chatting with Cassandra during this interview, I, I began to change my mindset a little bit. And I'm still a little bit stubborn, but I really, um, there were some things that kind of woke me up to um, what it means to protect yourself and um, 
and and you know so there's some things moving forward that I think I'm going to do a little bit more officially even if it means um, costing me uh, you know a little bit of upfront investment but um, personally I, I found this really helpful and, and kind of changed my opinion on on music law and what I've kind of always thought I could get away with um, I hope that you have found this helpful you might have um, your own opinions or your the own your own risks that you're willing to take and I, I totally respect that and, and I'm curious to hear from you um, come to our Facebook community um, you can email me at podcast at otherrecordlabels.com or, or leave a review on iTunes or a comment if you watch this on YouTube but I would love to hear from you in your stance on music law and, and what you plan to do with your label um, uh, I, I'm very curious thank you for taking the time to listen and please subscribe